Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 39th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Sarah Falah. Sarah is the founder and president of DataPoints, a technology company that's creating behavioral science and assessment tools for advisors to use to better assess, understand, and coach our clients' financial behaviors. What's fascinating about Sarah's work with DataPoints, though, is the way that they've applied research rigor to the fundamental question of what are the financial behaviors and traits that lead people to actually turn their income into wealth. Now, as advisors, many of us are already familiar with the concept of the mild-mannered millionaire next door who, through steady frugal savings behaviors, has managed to accumulate substantial wealth without being flashy about it. Well, as it turns out, that original research was done by Thomas Stanley, who was Sarah's father. And it's his initial work that she is now extending even further and turning into a series of assessment tools that we as advisors can use with our clients. So in this episode, we talk in some depth about Sarah's research on how people really build wealth, what those key financial behaviors and traits really are, including conscientiousness, financial literacy, frugality, planning, responsibility, and confidence that lead to wealth-building behaviors, why and how uh, data points measures social indifference, how sensitive you really are to trying to keep up with the Joneses, to really understand someone's wealth building potential and the way that they've turned all this research into a series of assessment tools that we can bring to clients, whether it's giving the assessment to young accumulator prospects to really understand how likely they are to save and accumulate wealth and be a a good long-term business client for us, or to give it to new or even existing clients just to better understand where their strengths are and where their potential financial challenges may be in the future. We even explore how these kinds of behavioral assessment tools could eventually become a way that we show our value as financial advisors, where we provide the assessment to clients year by year and actually show them not just how they're accumulating wealth over time, but how we're actually helping them to change their financial attitudes and behaviors for the better. And be certain to listen to the end where Sarah talks about the challenges in actually launching a technology company that provides solutions for advisors, how perfection can be the enemy of good is certainly true when it comes to getting a new company launched, and why even when it comes to starting a technology company, it's still all about focusing in on a narrow niche of a particular type of financial advisor that you want to serve. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Sarah Falah. Welcome, Sarah Falah, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you for having me. This is great. I'm glad to be here. I've been looking forward to this episode because you come to the podcast from a, a slightly different perspective, I think, than than a lot of other guests we have. You come from a, a background of psychology and have actually been building a company uh, called Data Points that creates behavioral science tools and and assessments for advisors for us to use with our clients to understand some of their, I guess we'll call it the, their psychology and behaviors around money. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things that we all talk about, like the, the, I find increasingly today is there's this obsession around robo-advisors commoditizing investment management that we increasingly say about the, the value of the human is that we help our clients through all this behavioral stuff. Yet, 
there is almost nothing that even measures and assesses clients' actual behaviors and behavioral tendencies, not, never mind whether we're actually doing anything and having any impact. So I, 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 I'm very curious, actually, for some of your perspectives around just the fact that we spend so much time talking about how we help our clients with behaviors and have virtually no tools to actually help even evaluate what their behavioral traits are and whether we're having any effect at changing them. Yeah, definitely. I think that's really what brought me to this industry or, you know, helped me or allowed me to create this this business, if you will, was the fact that there weren't really any tools out there like this. And, you know, we kind of saw this several years ago and when, when I started contemplating the business and like how could how could we do this? How could this work? And saw the the change. It felt like there was a wave of change in this industry. And of course, you talk about it quite a bit, you know, related to, again, focusing on clients' behaviors, talking about things like budgeting and spending and, you know, making those sort of part of the conversation versus returns and, you know, what's happening in the markets. And so you know, that's definitely, you know, one of the reasons that it was you know, really fun, I guess, to take this data and take the research that that we do have and and apply it here in this in the field and in the industry. So maybe as a starting point, why don't you just tell us a little bit about data points, your company? Like, what what is data points? What do, what do you do? What do we do? What do we do? Right. So data points pr- provides assessments, so behavioral assessments for advisors to use with their clients to help them understand, assess, and coach and develop behaviors that will allow them to be successful over time. So that's kind of the short version of what we do. And, you know, the the, the background is that there are, and, and what we found in the research that we've done, as well as the research that my father did for many, many years, was that there are these characteristics of individuals that allow them to to build wealth and, and specific behaviors that are conducive, right, to transforming income into wealth. And if we could measure those and then help the advisor understand how to impact those behaviors with their clients, ultimately the client could be more successful. So that's, you know, again, sort of the the short version of what we do and why we do it. But, you know, again, really the idea is let's let's put something in the hands of both the advisor and the client that gives them an objective way of understanding their behaviors and then a really, again, simple way of tracking recommendations and suggestions to help that coaching process over time. So can you break us break this down for us a little bit further? Like when you talk about characteristics and behaviors, I love that language that that help people translate income into wealth. So I mean like what what do you find? What are the 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 characteristics and behaviors that that you find that actually are this driver and outcome? I mean, is this the kind of stuff that at least we tend to think about as advisors, all these things like good behaviors include, you know, pay yourself first and spend less than you make like those kinds of, is that the sorts of characteristics and behaviors we're talking about or, or what have you found? Right. So very similar to what you're saying. So, you know, in terms of a characteristic, we might think of something like conscientiousness. So if you're familiar with the big five measures of personality, we think of individuals that are really conscientious, that can really pay attention to details, that kind of do what they say, that can stick to a plan. That tends to be, if you will, the underlying trait that kind of impacts whether or not someone can do all the things we just talked about. So, but from, again, from behaviors, what we see is 
that are related to that trait are things like being frugal and um, taking time to research, you know, prices and, and again, adhering to budgets that are able to, again, stick with plans for the long term, things like that. So those are kinds of things that we, that we measure in our assessments. So the, so the conscientiousness is like the, the high level trait characteristic, if I'm more conscientious, I'm more likely to exhibit behaviors like being frugal, because if I'm conscientious, I actually pay attention to what I'm spending money on, right? Like taking time to price, I adhere to budgets because I'm conscientious enough to actually pause and think about like, is what I'm spending actually consistent with my budget and I don't just impulse buy or stick with plans. So I, so I get it that like the conscientiousness kind of sits at the high level. Exactly. So, and and just you know, by way of comparison, and kind of going back to to my background, that's sort of the mother of all personality characteristics when we're talking about helping organizations pick who they should hire. So, if you can only pick one thing to measure outside of cognitive ability, let's say, it's conscientiousness. It's the best predictor of job performance. And really, in the if you think about managing your household's finances as sort of that chief household financial manager, it, it again is is one of the best predictors. From our research, there's other research backing that up as well. I just really like, say, uh, we've actually had some folks on the uh, on the podcast in the past that talked about that talked about uh, assessment tools for hiring. So uh, Kayla Brown from New Planner Recruiting does hiring of young advisors. So we had him on episode 31 talking about the tools that he uses in the hiring process, which was things like Colby assessments around cognitive work styles. So are there are there actually like job assessment tools that predict conscientiousness? I <laughs> just now that you bring it up, I'm kind right. of curious. <laughs> right, right. Now I'm curious. Right. So like for example, the Neo PI is one of the assessments that's out there that measures the five factors. That's probably the one of the more comprehensive assessments. There are other personality type assessments like the Hogan. If you're familiar with the Hogan group, they they do a really good job of of assessing personality for leadership and things like that. And just, you know, again, by way of kind of in the hiring world, there's sort of a shift away, though, from using kind of that single trait to measure and, and hire folks. What they're really looking at are, again, sort of a comprehensive view of the job and then creating assessments that are specific to what they're trying to measure. Yep. Sure. I mean, ultimately, like I get it, not not being conscientious means you're not going to pay attention to a whole bunch of details I probably care about as a business owner that's hiring you. But at some point, there's probably a few other skills and be and abilities I need beyond just a conscientious person that I have to train to do everything. Yes, so, yes. Okay. Yep. So I get it. Yeah. So you found that this dynamic of conscientiousness that drives so much of job performance and people, I guess, basically people's ability to focus on and care about the quality of their work translates over to the financial realm as well. That That people who are more conscientious are at least more likely to exhibit the behaviors that lead to the to translating income into wealth. Right, exactly. And and just as you said earlier that or just just a minute ago that there are of course other things that have to go that play into it and certainly things like financial literacy or or acumen, so you know how much you are or rather your your skills at 
mathematics, really numeracy. So are you able to calculate percentages in your head quickly and things like that? Those all play into it as well. But if you think about from, again, in a household, especially if you're um, in a situation with a couple, right? So there's also that empathy and agreeableness and how well are, are the, you know, how well are they going to be able to kind of work through some of these, you know, financial issues long-term. And so those come into play. We, we are sort of just on the cusp of, of looking at, at those issues as well. Okay. So I guess ironically, there's sort of a, it seems like there's a double-edged sword to me that people who are conscientious themselves are probably the ones that are most likely to be diligent about things like financial literacy and improving their numeracy. Because if you're conscientious, you would be likely to notice that you don't have the financial literacy that you probably want and realize you may not be making good decisions. And and the people who lack on the conscientiousness, unless they just happen to have some kind of innate math skills that makes the numeracy easy, are probably the ones that are the most likely to have trouble and the least likely to bother to try to become financially literate about it. Right. Yep, that's that's a great point. They certainly work together. At least that's that's the idea. Yep. So what else do you do you find in the in the research that that becomes a driver of of these positive, I guess positive or negative outcomes? Right, right. So I you know, I think the one that I guess captures the the me, the most media attention for us is certainly this concept of you know, caring about what the Joneses think. So we call it social indifference, but it really relates to, you know, how influenced you are when you're purchasing something, you know, how, how others influence you. So, you know, looking at things like whether or not you're paying attention to what's happening on social media related to your neighbors and your friends and your friends across the country and what they're doing and buying and wearing. And we found, again, sort of a uh, we found a positive relationship between that component and net worth independent of age and income. So, yeah, the, truly, I mean, it, it is a valid phenomenon that that the less you care about keeping up with the Joneses, the the more you tend to build and create wealth, and the more you try to keep up with the Joneses, the the less you tend to have good financial behaviors. Right, and again, I think what what we're and what we're looking at is the kind of that compilation of, of scores and, and, and kind of the mix of all of those things and how that relates long-term to financial success. It's part of the research that we are doing on, on an ongoing basis, but yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really, it's very interesting. Um, and I even, you know, you all of us get, you know, sucked into that sometimes like, okay, how many, how many posts are there on Twitter? And I, I can't keep up with that, for example, you know, but that, that kind of thing. So what other dynamics so we've got, there's an element of conscientiousness. There's, there's an aspect of kind of financial literacy and numeracy. There's a, a social indifference factor that drives some of these behaviors. So what, what other pieces have you found in the research that that kind of bubble up into wealth building behaviors? Yeah, so so sort of related uh, to conscientiousness, again, is this concept of focus of not being distracted. So, you know, to the extent that um, we can kind of keep our <laughs> eyes on on our on our goals and and not even sitting and planning, for example, if you sit down and say to yourself, I'm going to spend 30 minutes kind of researching and monitoring my finances and 
you know, five minutes in, you're looking at ESPN because it's college football weekend, you know, whatever it is. So, so people like me who are severely ADHD are, are not, <laughs> not often a good start on the, on the wealth building anything. focus. <laughs> right, right, right. I'm not saying anything about that. Right. So the, the idea is the, the more you can focus and the more that you can ignore distractions, the more likely, you know, we found a, a positive relationship. Doesn't mean it's cause, a causation of that, but um, there is a relationship there. Yep. All right. And, and I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, we, we deal with this all the time in the, in the advisor context that uh, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to be, bring clients back to focus on their long-term goals and, and ignore short-term noise. And you know, while I've never thought to label clients this way, like it, it's certainly true. We have some people that are just really good at that. And then a bunch that we have to talk to every time something's going on in markets or life or whatever, it, wherever else it is. So yeah, I, like I, I never thought to frame up clients that way, but I guess we, we just live it automatically in our lives that, that I guess in our world, like some clients require more handholding to keep trying to get them to focus back on their long-term goals and others like they're just fine. We say, here's what we got to do and they're square and we see them every now and then. And like, it's fine. Just don't have to, don't have to deal with much. So, so some are, some of those are, are high on the financial focus scale and some are, are not so much. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I would, it, that kind of goes hand in hand too, with um, one of the things that we are researching related to, investment decision-making. So part of, again, the science that we use or the methodology we use to measure these things is the scientific measurement of patterns of behaviors and experiences. That's kind of what we, that's how we do the things we do and how our assessments are created. In psychology speak, that's called biodata. But the idea is that, um, again, we can measure these patterns of behaviors reliably and in a way that allows us to predict things in the future. And so one of the ones kind of going along with what you just mentioned is um, composure. So composure related to loss. And that comes up mostly when we're talking about things like risk and risk tolerance and, you know, again, investment decision making. But that's something that, that we're you know, researching and, and looking into as well. So that's that's been a really interesting, you know, line of research. How does that play into what's traditionally thought of as a risk tolerance questionnaire? And and then again, how does financial acumen or literacy play into that too? Right. Because, uh, you know, we, I've written about this a few times on the site from, from our perspective that, that there's just, there's certain clients that seem to be more effective at maintaining their composure in the face of wildly volatile and fluctuating markets and others that just can't maintain their composure, their perceptions swing all over the place. Like this week, the market's up, so it's going to the moon. And then the next week, the market's going down, so it's going to zero. And 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 like they just literally, they, they can't maintain their composure while others are completely fine. Yep, definitely. Yep. That's, you know, our hope is that if we can identify with our assessment, those types of clients early on that the advisor can be really equipped to, you know, help either, you know, know that these things are going to happen in advance or, you know, help coach them, you know, is there a way to coach them so that they're not, you know, freaking out every time, you know, the market drops. So well, that's, that's the. And to me, it, it, it makes an interesting point as well that, I mean, I think for most of us, you know, we tend to think of you know, sort of the who has bad composure and is likely to call me 
in a in a bear market and volatile markets. Like I, I think our general go to is basically my risk tolerant clients are the ones who are fine, and my risk intolerant are the ones who are not fine. Which is why my risk intolerant clients are the ones that get more conservative portfolios. But you know, I I, I mean, I felt like I've seen this for a long time just across from clients over the years that that even on that scale like we've got conservative clients who just aren't interested in the roller coaster they're like just i just want a moderate portfolio and i'll get some reasonable growth and i'm fine and then we've got a few that are that are conservative because they're just the, like the classic nervous nelly and if we do anything more volatile they're, they're going to go off the wheels but but again just it strikes me like one of those is very good composure, just happens to be conservative. The other one has terrible composure, and maybe that's why we dialed her down to be conservative or dialed him down to be conservative. But it's – I mean, just it's like it's a reminder to me that, that it, it's not enough just to talk about tolerance for risk because at the other end of the spectrum as well, like we've had risk-tolerant clients that just want to take the risk and are completely comfortable with it, so I'd call them very composed. And then we've got the – highly risk tolerant clients that like are basically feel like adrenaline junkies sitting across from them like they just the composure is terrible they 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 want the ride but they're you know crazy excited and over exuberant to the upside and then they're neurotic on the down on the decline and you know they like they they want to take the risk and insist on taking the risk but they they cannot maintain their focus through the through the ups and downs Right. And so I think I, you know, and I've heard you discuss this, I think in the past too, I think the idea of deciding if that's a client, especially early on that you would want to, that, that would be a challenging client. I, I guess that's the better way to say that. And so. Right. So you would, you would want to know up front who's got bad composure, whether they're aggressive, whether they're aggressive or conservative, because just, it's not really tolerant or intolerant of risk that makes them challenge clients in volatile markets. It's poor composure that makes them challenging clients in volatile markets. Right. Exactly. That, that allows them to call you every five minutes or something like that. Yep. Yes. So you've got these different measures, conscientiousness and financial literacy and social indifference and financial focus and composure. So what are there other characteristics you found as well that, that layer into this? Yep. So one of them, uh, you know, that's a little more, I guess, challenging, if you will, to to coach and develop or talk about with a client is this concept of responsibility. And that sounds really general. The the psychological component is locus of control. So you might remember that as a as a psych major, but yes, yes. as a psych yes. major, I absolutely remember yep. locus of control. Right. So the idea is, you know. Does the client have a view that things that are happening to them is because of uh, external thing uh, reasons, right? So the economy or government or something outside of their control, or do I view things that happened to me entirely in my control? Did I, I did this, this all came, you know, came about because of something I did. So there, you know, there are good and bad sides to both of those, right? So for the, the internal person, so the person that believes that everything that's happening is because of something that they did, you know, it tends to be really anxious too. So even though it, in general, it's, we found that people that do have that internal locus of control tend to be ones that can transform and come into wealth. There is a flip side, right? There's too much of a good thing. Whereas those that kind of view everything as kind of happening to them or, you know, 
my parents didn't leave me enough money or I don't, you know, I can't get a job or something like that. If they're constantly sort of blaming others for their financial woes, that may be an indication that, you know, they're not entirely ready to take, you know, responsibility for, for their financial outcomes. And so that, that component's really interesting. And, and so we, we measure that in, in one of the assessments and that's a real, I guess, fertile area for coaching. It's, it's a tough one, but it's something that, you know, can help the individual and the advisor understand, okay, why are we seeing, you know, you behave this way? Well, maybe it's because you're not viewing, you're not viewing that anything that you do will actually impact your financial success. So. Right. So the, the personal or the responsibility dynamic here is very much like a a personal responsibility do you i guess well sort of the literal version would be do you take responsibility for your financial outcomes but i guess really it's more of do you believe you are responsible for your financial outcomes in the first place right it sort of makes sense if i really don't think that i'm responsible for my financial outcomes there's no reason to save because it might just go away and there's no reason to try because it might just come to me anyways like if if the world just happens i'm you know equally likely to lose my money in a disaster or win the lottery. So who really cares what I do? We'll just see what happens. Whereas if I think it's under my control, now like working hard and saving literally feels rewarding. Like I think I can control it. I tried. I worked hard. I save. I get a good outcome. I can do this. So I want to keep doing it. I start building wealth. Exactly. Yep. And I think, yeah. I guess with, with the caveat that if I'm if I think there's too much under my control, I just become grossly overconfident and then end up doing really stupid things. Right, right. Or you start thinking, you know, exactly, you make kind of goes hand in hand with confidence, which is something else that we measure, of course. You know, we don't want to be overconfident. We we know just from not only our research, but, you know, tons of research on this that overconfidence in investing is is not a good thing. But, you know, there there is some... You, got, you do have to be confident in decision-making. And that is somewhere where advisors, for example, can really help their clients, is help coach them to be more confident in their financial decision-making through either education or, you know, recommending, you know, small steps towards that. So I think that's that's one area I really feel like advisors, advisors that are concerned about, you know, making sure their clients are, are doing the right thing um, can really impact, impact them. So... Help me understand that, like, how is confidence different different than responsibility in this in this context? Like, if I think I'm if I think the stuff's under my control because I've got a high personal responsibility, am I aren't I kind of by definition confident in my outcomes at that point, or not necessarily? Not necessarily. So we do see some differences. Um, our confidence measure, and again, we measure it you know, looking at behaviors and experiences, but it really ties more into kind of self-esteem and how you look at your kind of, how you look at all of your decision-making and uh, abilities, if you will, outside of decision-making as well. So it really has more to do with that component versus I feel like I'm responsible or I feel like I'm in control of something. Uh, So they we think that they go hand in hand. We see that 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 they do they do contribute uh, differently to 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 financial success, at least in the research that we've done. And so, you know, again, confidence is more that self esteem piece related to finances. 
We, so the funny, I guess just as an anecdote, we have in, in sort of our journey to, to create this business, we've come across some advisors and have heard anecdotally from advisors that they, very few, but, you know, oh, I want, I want a client that's not confident because then I can tell them what to do all the time. And I'm like, that is not an advisor I necessarily would, <laughs> would want to work with, but you know, again, they are a little bit different. So I can, I can feel responsible for what's happening, but I might not feel empowered or, or may not feel very capable. Right. So that's kind of the, the, I guess the comparison there. Yep. Well, and this, this really like this, this reminds me a lot of a lot of the, the, the research and the, and the theory around behavior change overall, which is that if, if, if we're going to be capable of changing behavior, like not only do we need to know what to do and how to do it, but we actually have to have the self-confidence and the internal locus of control that we believe we can change our own behavior. Otherwise, we just kind of give up and we never actually try even when we're coached on what to do. Right. And I think that also speaks to, I know you had a, a great piece on behavior change and sort of the the impact of the advisor in that role, right? So that direct relationship I think that's where coaching really comes into play and having a, a relationship can really help in those areas uh, versus, oh, I have an app that's going to remind me, you know, to, I don't know what, but, you know, it's, it's a different situation. Yep. Right. Like if I'm, my Fitbit nudges me every now and then to, that I need to exercise, but like if I just don't feel it, I just turn it off and, and turn the notification off and then I don't feel bad anymore. But if I've got a workout buddy that I'm supposed to meet for a jog at seven o'clock tomorrow morning, like I don't, I don't want to be the dude that doesn't show up at 7am makes him run alone. Cause he's going to be really angry and he doesn't want to be that person that would make me angry to be alone. So we both show up even though neither of us may have done it on our own. Just, just cause the, the social accountability, I can't, I can't turn off an agreement with another person the way that I can just tell the technology to stop bothering me if I don't feel like dealing with it. So are those are those all the core like the core behaviors the core measurements that you found or are there others as well? I think you know the other pieces is, is- generally the time and the effort spent planning. So from, you know, how much um, effort and, and sort of what kind of planning behaviors, are you a goal setter, those kinds of things we measure as well. So that's also um, a component. We have a few other things. Again, you know, we, we've sort of I've spent, gosh, you know, the last eight years or so researching this in depth. And there are a lot of other areas to explore. And I feel like, again, final, financial planning is sort of an academic field is relatively new, like compared to industrial psychology, for example. Yes, yes we're, um, we're very new to the world of, of academia. Thank you. We have a lot. Again, that's why we say things like we're primarily in the business of helping clients change their behaviors and like, you know, the the academic nerd in me is like, oh, really? So which behaviors precisely do you try to change? And what's your theory of change for how you impact your clients in those ways? And I, I don't know that I know any advancer that, as an advisor that could answer that. And like, it's not to be snarky. It's just, we sort of do it and deal with it and live with it, but there's no cohesive framework around like, what exactly are we trying to do? Like, which which needles are we trying to move? Or even just recognizing which things can we actually impact and which can we not, right? I think we we often experience that in practice, you know, that we kind of colloquially call them bad clients, right? Like there's just certain people, I just keep giving them the advice and they just keep not doing it and self-destructing. And at some point I, I just kind of throw my hands up in the air that I wish I could help them, but I can't. 
but we don't really have any other labels for why it's not working aside from I, I keep giving them the advice and they keep not doing it and self-constructing and, and I throw up my hands up in the air and, and move on from them, right? Like we, we don't, it's never really entirely clear what, what we're trying to work towards aside from I'm trying to tell them what to do and they're not doing it. Right. So we, you know, part of the work, we work with closely with uh, Dr. John Grable at the University of Georgia, which I think I've mentioned to you before, but part of the research that we embarked on, and I actually started this several years ago, but was looking at that household manager, household financial manager as a job. And we've taken a lot of the methodologies from industrial psychology to pinpoint what are the key things, what are the most critical things that someone that's in that role has to do? What do they have to do to be successful? And then, you know, what are the, what's the model, the competency model? We, we had a slide last year at, at XYPN where we showed sort of this model of, of all the, the, the characteristics and behavioral patterns that could impact financial management. And, you know, that's, that's definitely something that at least we're working on. We have a working paper. We're submitting it to the CFP academic colloquium. Yeah. On kind of the, the critical tasks of household financial managers. What are, what are the things they have to do? You know, how's it compared to all the other stuff you're telling them to do? That kind of thing. So, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of working in that, in that field, if you will, and, and pushing forward there. So it's, it's been really cool. Okay. So I get this series of traits that tend to be wealth building. Like, you know, do I take personal responsibility? Do I have confidence? Am I good at focus? Am I socially indifferent so that I I don't keep messing myself up trying to keep up with the Joneses? So, so from your perspective, like the, the point of data points, no, no pun intended. The point of data points is that you've actually taken these different factors and actually built them into an assessment tool? Right. So we have created a way again to assess those behaviors in individuals or in in clients in order for the client, most importantly, but the advisor as well to, you know, have a clear picture of where they stand relative to others and then, you know, provide recommendations for how to improve in those areas. That's Again, that, and we also have a way for advisors to monitor that progress. It's self-report. So we're not, you know, we're, we're still relatively new and young. So it's not linked into Mint. You're not, you're not, I'm not rating us right. in our performance. You're just giving us a way to right. track our own right. results. Um, <laughs> you know, and we're not linked into Facebook. Like we don't know how long you've spent on Facebook and can't measure that. But, um, you know, the idea is let's check in relatively frequently with our clients, remind them of what we talked about, remind them of the recommendations we gave them. Them and that they agreed to to do with us, and then let's track that over time. And then if it's working and they seem to be improving, maybe make those recommendations even more challenging, so that they're consistently building those behaviors over time. So, how does this assessment actually work? Like, I'm assuming it's basically just a series of of questions, like you know, things that poke at how confident I am, and things that poke at whether my locus of control is internal, external and, and things like that. Like I just, I, I go through a series of questions and then you'll score me on all these different dimensions. Exactly. So we, like I mentioned earlier, we use this methodology that's called biodata that's been around for 
uh, a long time. Um, again, it's one of the better predictors of, of how well someone will do in the future on the job as well, just like conscientiousness by itself. And we ask a series of questions related to, you know, how others view you, what you do in certain situations, how you view yourself. And, you know, some of them seem straightforward. So we do get that sort of comment, I guess, from advisors, like, I know what to do in this situation. Of course, I'm going to say, you know, I strongly agree or, you know, of course, I plan for my family's financial future, what have you. But, you know, you guys are experts. You're experts in your field and you and you know what it takes to build wealth. And again, you know, we have the the research to back up that these these questions work and, and we score them in a way for many of them that's not necessarily intuitive. But yeah, that's 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 the gist. So they the the client would take an assessment and the advisor receives a really comprehensive report and the client does as well. And then they can create an, a way for them to recommend, you know, things like, especially if they're low on something for them to do and work on over time. And you find like the, as clients take this, they don't, they don't succumb to uh like a social desirability bias that that whole, like I, well, I'm, of course I want to say I'm good at all this stuff. Like, are you confident? Yeah, of course I am. Like uh, someone's grading me. Of course I'm going to answer yes. Right. Right. So the way that we get around that, just like any good test, you know, development process is to, again, assess multiple areas related to a specific factor. So, you know, I might be able to or I might feel like I can inflate my scores and and on some of these questions, but I'm not going to do that consistently, usually over time. That's always a, you know, that's always a gamble with psychometrics, right? There's always going to be individuals that feel this, um, feel compelled to answer a certain way, but yeah. But for anybody who's ever, ever wondered of, uh, you know, why is it when you take some assessment tools like this and sometimes you feel like the questions ask you sort of the same thing two or three different ways, like this is why, because they're trying to actually measure whether you're answering consistently. Cause sometimes if you're, if you're trying to game the system, you, you kind of forget, you know, always game it every time. And that's how they catch it to figure out that you may not be answering accurately. Yeah. It, you know, just as a, you know, it's a big red flag if you're contemplating an assessment that has 12 questions and 12 different scales. And it says, you know, this is, you know, that's, that's a red flag. There's, you know, just, there's a lot that goes behind the reliability and validity of a test. So, yep. yep. This is, this is why even risk tolerance questionnaires need, need to have a couple of questions there Absolutely. so you can, so you can get yeah. through them. And that just measures one thing. Like that's usually right, just exactly. trying to measure tolerance. Yep. So, all right. So, so given that, so how, how long is the assessment that a client actually goes through to get scored up on all these different areas? Right. So we have different assessments for different sort of needs, if you will. So the building wealth, yeah, the building wealth test is really designed for individuals that are new to financial management or, you know, for example, have had a life change and all of a sudden they're responsible for their household's financial management. Okay. So you're the recent, recent widow kinds of things. Like I was not the financial household manager and now I am. So What am I going to do? Let's get a sense of whether you're kind of naturally wired this way or not. Yep. Yep. And so that each of, let me back up and answer your question too. So each of the assessments has about 45 to 50 questions. So it takes about 12 to 15 minutes uh, on average um, for someone to complete. I mean, I feel like 45 to 50 questions is a lot, but like 
12 to 15 minutes. I mean, these are not hard. It, it takes you right. You're not doing math problems, right? Or something, yeah. Just kind of read a question. You know, are you really confident one to five? I'm sure they're a little more complex than that. Like, are you really yeah. confident? I can kind of check a one to five and then I move on to the next question. Exactly. Yeah. We're not, they're not doing algebra or, you know, compound interest or anything like that, but they, yeah, exactly. So we, each assessment, um, it's a little bit different and we also have an attitudinal assessment, which is a whole different, probably a topic for a whole different podcast, but it really deals with financial attitudes. So how do I feel? So not behavior necessarily, but how do I feel about things like budgeting and spending and and that sort of thing? That tends to be more appropriate for a broader range of clients. So even even somebody that has been, you know, doing this for a long time, someone that's high or ultra high net worth, for example, you know, understanding their attitudes about investing. Are they a short-term or long-term investor? Do they are they really focused on status or is that something that's not very important to them? You know, understanding those kinds of things are important as well. And then our final assessment that we offer today is the investor profile, which has that composure piece in it as well. So there's an investor profile, there's an attitudinal assessment, and there's the the building wealth test? Yep, exactly. Okay. So help me understand or just think through how I how I use this, or I guess even just where I use it right now. So I'm thinking about, I feel like building wealth test is the most straightforward. It's like I'm taking on a client. I sort of get it. Like it would be helpful to know their, you know, personal responsibility, their confidence. I would think particularly things like frugality and social indifference, just so I can basically understand whether this is likely to be a problem client or not. I can, I can almost imagine like if it's a younger client, I might even do this just to figure out basically is is this going to be a good long term client for me from the advisor's end or someone that's even if they're a high income is basically never going to accumulate wealth because they they score horribly on all these factors. So there's a version of this that I guess is basically like a screening tool to help understand is this a good client for me, particularly if they don't have wealth yet, but in theory are going to build it with me. And and I guess there's a second application, which is just after you agree to become a client, I can say, well, you know, here's a here's a tool that we use to try to get to know our clients a little bit better that we'd like to have you go through. And we're going to talk about the results and I can put them through this assessment just so I've got some context around, all right, where where is this person strong and where are they weak? Like, where are the areas I know I'm going to have to give them some nudges? Like, they got great responsibility and they're good at planning and confidence, but they are also not good on the social indifference. Like they're good at planning, but they also love keeping up with their neighbors. So that will be their tension that we're going to have to work with. Right. So I think, you know, in terms of where the assessments are used, definitely with building wealth, we've seen the advisors that are using that particular assessment are really using it in that we've agreed to be, you know, we've agreed to work together and now take this assessment and let's figure out you know, how we can work together on these, on these areas, depending on, you know, what they're high and low on, you know, funny enough, we had originally when, when we, when I started down this path had really thought of this kind of like what you were saying, almost like a screening tool, but really to help advisors take a chance on a client, like you were saying that maybe doesn't, you know, if they have minimums, maybe doesn't meet the minimum yet, but exhibits behaviors that indicate that they're going to be doing great in the future. So, you know, maybe this is someone that you can bring on 
there's a label in our industry. I don't I don't actually love it, but it's it's uh, going after the Henrys, H-E-N-R-Y, high earner, not rich yet, which I find kind of cop- offensive because frankly, it just views every young person as like, you know, like every every person is either you're rich enough to be my client or you're not rich enough yet, but you'll get there. Kind of aggravates me, but you know, I mean, there's certainly a dynamic, and we see this for folks that we work with over time. And you can have young professionals that are in very healthy earning careers, and some of them like just accumulate wealth like a rocket ship. You know, they they live moderately and they're banking huge dollars, and you know they quickly assemble a, a million dollar nest egg very quickly. And then others like, you know, I've still seen more than one doctor that earns three to four hundred thousand dollars a year and lives paycheck to paycheck. Right, right. So the the doctor piece was always the one, you know, doctors were always fodder for not not laughs, but certainly, you know, that's they have that reputation and you're absolutely right. I think that they come out or, or really anyone. I'm at, you know, think about when you had your first job and I think about it too. It's like, oh my gosh, they're paying me to do this. I'm I'm really excited. Let me go celebrate. That can be, you know, uh, especially with a high income, right? It's like, okay, well, I need to drive this kind of car. And well, of course we have to go ahead and, and live in this neighborhood, you know, and they're spending in anticipation of being wealthy. And yeah, that can definitely trip them up. And so for there, like for the Henry, where you're trying to figure out if it's actually a good potential long-term accumulator client for you, giving them an assessment like building wealth up front may actually be a pretty good way to to do it with, I guess, the caveat you you really want to give it to them up front because it's kind of awkward if you say you're going to work with them. And then you give them an assessment and then you're like, actually, I really don't want to work with you now that you've gone through this. So I got to maybe use it a little bit more as a screen to, hey, this is something that – uh you know, we use to with potential clients to evaluate whether they're a good fit for us. So I'd like to give you this questionnaire and, you know, at worst, you'll learn something interesting about yourself and, uh, and at best, we'll find out that we're a good match to work together. Definitely. I, I do think I will say with that one little caveat, which is, you know, it doesn't measure kind of the, you know, we don't measure agreeableness and we don't measure loyalty and we don't measure, you know, things that, that also impact, right. The client relationship with, with the advisor. And so, so, so they could, so they may be good at accumulating wealth at you, but they could still be highly unpleasant people. Well, right. And the opposite of course is true, which is they might need a lot of help in terms of coaching their behaviors, but they're, they're just a great client. They're kind, they're, they're easy to work with. They, you know, they listen, generally listen to you. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it measures some things, but it can't measure everything. So sure. So maybe we'll say like it, it, it'll help measure the business potential of the client, not necessarily the actual desire to work with the client. Right, right. You know, it doesn't necessarily, um, exactly, exactly. And it, in that particular assessment doesn't have that composure factor. Um, you know, again, can indicate or can be a real red flag if if that's something that's, you know, if you don't want to answer the phone a, a thousand times in 2008. Yep. So, like, how does the the software or the tool actually work? Like, I, I, I email a link to my clients. I, like, hand them an iPad in my office. Here's the, here's the little test tool. Do I embed this on my website, like dear prospect, check this out. If you ever want to learn more about yourself, like how, how do these, how do these come together? Yep. So the, the main test that we talked about, the three, the longer, you know, comprehensive assessments are designed to be sent to your clients. So we 
strongly recommend and the research supports having clients take assessments like ours, but but others as well, including risk tolerance assessments on their own. So don't don't do it in, in my office. Right. Where you're standing there, you're sitting there and they're like, do I answer it this way or do I answer Looks it like that way? And if you were ever worried that they might not answer truthfully and just try to answer to be pleasing to you, there's nothing like sitting across from them, staring at them while they answer right. stare <laughs> that, <yeah. laughs> to, exactly. just to push that right. point across to them. Right. Yes. And I, you know, the demand kind of characteristics kick in and it's like, well, what does he expect me to say? Do I, you know, and, we, then that kind of and thing. That's a good so, because frankly, yep. you know, we, I say that sort of joking here, but a lot of us do risk tolerance questionnaires with clients right there in the office. Mm, that's mm-hmm, actually pretty common. Mm-hmm. So okay. I guess we should be cognizant that that, that may be a problem. You know, our process, we, we adopted Finometric a couple of years ago, which similar is a 25-question questionnaire. And so when we actually did that, we started sending it to clients in advance of the meeting where we usually talk about investment issues just because, it, frankly, I guess it, it was long enough. It was just conducive from a workflow and client experience process to have them do it ahead of time. And we just talk about the results of the meeting instead of having them do it right there in the meeting. But I guess we we kind of lucked into what was also a good process from just getting better answers from our clients. Yes. And, and Phenometrica, you know, they do a fantastic job just going back to talking about psychometrics of, yeah, that's why you we know, their technical them. man. Exactly. They, they outline very clearly how they created their assessment. And, and, but yes, I think even research that, um, in some of the research related to risk tolerance questionnaires supports the concept of, of having them take it on their own. So, yep, you, you fell into the right way. That's good. <laughs> every, every, now, every now and then it works out that way. So I can kind of set up my client and say, okay, you know, here's Jimmy's email address. And I email it out to Jimmy and I say, hey, can you please take this assessment tool? And they go through, and I guess once Jimmy finishes, like copy of the results get sent to him, copy of the results get sent to me as the advisor. And then I can follow up to say, all right, now let's, let's sit down and talk about the the results of your your building wealth assessment? Yes. So you can do that. Or we have two kind of different ways that advisors have been using this. And we actually, this was a couple of recommendations from some of our advisors that are XY planners, which is they wanted their clients to receive just a quick snapshot of their results. Like give them, you know, and and I, I just sat through this 10 minute assessment or 15 minute assessment. I need something right in return for my time. Right. Right. Yeah. Like you, yeah, you, you got to give them something on the spot or they're just kind of satisfied about the time. They exactly. Just- but they really preferred or advisors really preferred having the opportunities to sort of digest those results before they had a conversation versus giving the client this big report that talks about all of these things and the client being like, what is this? You know, they really preferred to walk through that, those results with, with their clients uh, and, and really digest okay. them. Like I, yep. I need to give them something so that they're, you know, they get the human being must get some immediate gratification at the end of this 10 to 15 minute questionnaire thing. But I don't want to dump everything on them, particularly if maybe some of the results aren't good. I'd, I'd rather deliver that in person and have that conversation. Exactly. And then there's a PDF version for the client and there's a PDF version for the advisor as well that has a little more information. And 
how to interpret the results and all that good stuff. So yeah, that's definitely the process. And for building wealth, then the next step would be to work with that client to say, well, you know, if the advisor wants to do this and the client's open to it, you know, what are the areas we want to work on together? Let's pick, you know, a couple and find recommendations that can help you improve in these areas. So I feel like this is a, this is an interesting spot to me. So on the one hand, like we all talk about how we try to help our clients through these behaviors and, and, you know, it's pretty straightforward to kind of play this out in your head. Like, Clients who are bad at social indifference, we're going to have lots of keeping up with the judges questions. And clients who aren't frugal, we're always going to be talking about their spending. And you know, clients who have you know, poor views around personal responsibility, it's going to be a pain in the butt just to get them to take responsibility for their actions. So I, I like I, I get it in identifying who's got problem areas, but I, I'm curious, even for your views with the background as a psychologist, like how well positioned are we as advisors to actually? help clients with these kinds of behaviors like where where does where is you know we talk about ourselves as being advisors to help with behavior but where is the line between when i'm practicing as an advisor and when i'm basically practicing as a psychologist particularly since psychologists actually get a whole lot of training in how to coach people through behaviors and we don't right right so you know that's that's a great point you know what we've tried to do is you know, first of all, make the recommendations and the the reporting very straightforward. So we're not talking about, you know, abnormal personality, for example, or clinical assessments. We're not talking right, about, right. Um, you know... Like none, none of this stuff's in the DSM that right, we're, exactly. we're looking up and yes. providing no, 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 official... No, uh, no. again, uh, my... Yeah, statements yeah. on. Okay. I know people often ask, am I a clinical psychologist? And no, that is not, you know, I didn't, I didn't grow up in that world. So industrial psychology is really, you know, more focused on normal, if you will, personality uh, characteristics and assessments and things like that. We say normal, right? What's normal? The, the wonderful range of normal human beings with the, the normal dysfunctions that normal people <laughs> right. have. Yes. Right. So we try to make it straightforward. We are again. We we provide some recommendations in the in the system and the platform itself that that advisors can choose from, but they're not anything. You know, we do try to make them smart. You know, kind of smart goals, if you will, or, or recommendations. They're not really anything that's too terribly different from a, a manager or an executive that's trying to coach individuals below them. You know, in an organization and using performance management. We really tried to use that as the model because we do know that we don't want to get into, you know, issues related to hoarding and spending and, and thing, you know, that again, clinical kind right. type like, issues. Um, there's so, a level of hardcore dysfunction that like this is truly beyond my advisor pay grade. Yep. But we have, um, and we know that we need to, you know, provide additional kind of limitations around what you can and can't, you know, what you should and shouldn't do related to, you know, some of these areas. It's also designed, you know, eventually we'll be rolling this out later this year, where there's a client portal where they can actually create their own plan. So, I mean, imagine, okay, what are the things I need to work on to improve here that I think I can actually do? So, again, what we're hoping is we're just giving the tools that allow the advisor to have that conversation um, and that they're straightforward enough that they don't feel like they have to have a, a you know, clinical degree to, to, to talk about those things. I would, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Uh, no, I was just going to ask you, and you, I mean, you said, 
you kind of view this as a performance measurement, like a performance assessment over time. So is the idea that if advisors, if I'm doing this with my, like if I've got an ongoing client, I don't just give this to them when I start working with them. I give this to them repeatedly over time. Well, so we don't actually give the full assessment, you know, repeatedly over time. We believe we've built a really reliable and valid tool. And so it's not something that you would need to to reassess with. Instead, what we recommend is checking in on the specific behaviors that you and your client agreed to. So if we've, if we've said, for example, under planning that you're going to spend, you know, 30 minutes of time each week monitoring what's going on in your financial accounts, check in with them about that. So then they would just rate that particular piece versus taking this big, long assessment again. What we're trying to do is see behavioral change in specific areas. And so it doesn't require taking a huge assessment again. It's really asking you, did you do this? And how are you feeling about you know how you're doing related to social indifference? Are you checking Facebook every five minutes? That kind of thing. Okay. So uh, like a handful of questions in each area, this is like a 10 or 15 question reassessment kind of tool or something. Well, it really just depends on which, how many factors you want your client to work on. So if I just pick, if I, you know, and we would recommend starting small. So one or two areas might be the best choice. So if they're low on frugality, for example, you know, recommending two or three things that they can do over the, you know, the course of the next several months to, to work on and then checking in with them periodically to see how they're doing on those things. It would be really overwhelming to receive back recommendations, you know, in all six areas, for example, with that test. I wouldn't stick with it. Um, I don't know what that says about me, but I, uh, yeah, that, well, that I mean, that's why I was, yeah. that's why yeah. I was asking her or, or wondering, but I guess it makes sense. Yeah. My client already scored well on confidence. Like I, I, we don't need to keep doing the confidence thing. They already scored well. We, we we know this isn't a problem area. We don't need to keep reassessing that. Okay, and and so if I'm going to do that, then I guess that's also part of the software system that I can you know queue up these reassessment questionnaires to go out to clients as well. Yes. So we you can either automatically do that. So you can we don't we have the option to check in with them every day, but. You might drive that client away. So um, you can pick kind of the time frame um, and they're just automatically sent an email that, you know, again, it has just a few, you know, areas to rate. And then, you know, before you meet with them, you can also send them, you know, you can do it uh, through the system as well. Just pick whenever you want to do it. So is there a way even to automate it directly off my website? Like I'm just imagining for existing clients, I mean, I, I get it. I know who they are. I can enter their stuff in and queue it up. But if I'm trying to do this with prospects, particularly if it's a more of the screening tool angle of things, like I don't even know that I want, like, if I have to manually queue it up every time, it, it sort of slows down how many people I can give this to. Yep. So that's one of the, uh, I guess, requests, right, from most of our uh, advisors that we're working with. And it's on our product calendar to make that component part of, for example, a client portal or something that where they can start that process themselves. Make it a, make it like a marketing widget. The same, the same that we have tools like, uh, you know, Riskalyze has a widget. You can just on your website and people come and they go through the questionnaire process and then they can express to you that they're interested when they get to the end. So you're, you're working on some similar, you know, widgetized version of data points. Well, that that's actually we we do actually have the widget right now that but it's actually um, a short version. It's a very small assessment that's used that advisors can use for lead generation. So 
the idea behind those, so those are separate assessments from the three that we've been talking about, but the idea behind that was to give advisors kind of a unique measurement. So we have like spending behaviors and career fit and things like that, that they can embed into their sites, depending on, you know, what blog topic they're writing about or what their marketing campaign is. And then that actually generates a lead off their website for them. And then they can kind of put them into the process within our system for those longer assessments. So I'm, I'm curious for further context on just y- your journey to coming to a point where you're making wealth assessment tools for financial advisors and running a technology company as a, as a psychology major. Uh, we psychology majors go interesting places in our lives. So, uh, so I like, I mean, how did you come to this whole path of studying people's financial behaviors and wealth building? Yeah, definitely. So it, it definitely was a, a, a journey. I, um, as I mentioned, as we've talked about before, my, my father was a marketing research professor and that's, you know, that's the first exposure, I guess I had to what you might call psychometrics, but really at the time it was survey research. So I recall having, you know, on the dining room table, big piles of these returned surveys and, um, you know, right. Cause like those- a couple of years ago we would be doing these with like, these were mailers. We mail them out to people. Well, you do the survey exactly. and yep. you get them all back and right. someone's got to collate the results. Right. So okay. this is, you know, the 80s or whatever, but dating myself here. Um, so I kind of always, you know, I always had an interest in, in research in general, um, studied psychology in, at the University of Georgia, took a couple of um, sort of honors kind of clinics, if you will, within the clinical department absolutely could not do that. That was not my gift. It was not clinical psychology. Definitely wanted to take home the the tragedies and the the um, concerns of others. I just, I think that's a really, it's a gift that people have that, that can manage those things. I hit the same crossroads when I was a uh... I was a psychology major, and by the time I got to the end, it was like, yeah, um, those people are a little nuts sometimes. I'm right. not I, sure I can work with that. Yeah, it, it was it was really heartbreaking too, right? So some of the stories that you would hear, and yeah, so so I found my professor that was I was working with in the clinical department said you should really check out if you like statistics and you like math, check out the industrial psychology side of the house. And so I started working with um, Garnet Stokes, who's now at the University of Missouri. And she, uh, you know, is sort of the queen of biodata. I know that's like, what does that mean? But she was, (laughs) she's kind of known in her field for that particular methodology. And started working with her, finished my bachelor's and master's and continued on with her for the PhD there. And really, again, industrial psychology is focused on psychology of the workplace. So how can we hire, assess, develop uh, individuals within roles? How can we put together teams? Um, how can we impact organizational culture? Things like that. So that's uh, the world I went into. And I went into personnel selection specifically. So how can we, you know, what kinds of tools can we create to hire and, and assess folks? And I spent a long time working for a small technology company in Atlanta. Um, that was my first real job out of uh, out of graduate school, and it was called Quiz with a W, which is kind of funny. Quit, quit, like Q W I Z Quiz. 
Exactly. Yep. Yep. And have a lot of, you know, learned, really cut my teeth and learned quite a bit about certainly technology, but also how to have a product focused company in this field. So this particular company had you know hundreds of assessments that they offered. And at the time, online testing was just, you know, super new, right, to take a test over a computer. So I worked there, um, headed up their consulting arm, if you will, and worked in product management, had a lot of experience with the fact that they were they were backed by a VC company, got into um, learning about how that whole world worked as well. So we went through acquisitions and, and ultimately were bought by corporate executive board, which now was bought by Gartner. So I kind of had that I, I lived that a little bit for a while. Okay, so you, you've actually gone down some of the the, the tech company entrepreneur, well, not entrepreneurial path, because I guess you joined as an employee, but like you've seen technology startup that grows and goes through the cycle. Exactly. Yep. And and so, but in two thousand nine ish, I started you know kind of thinking there there might be something else. I I had we had kids and I was working part time at that point. And started looking at my dad's research. So I had for a long time kind of, you know, I wanted to make a name for myself instead of writing his coattails. Obviously, the millionaire next door was very well known when I started working. So that was that was his research. That was your father's research. Correct. Yep. Yep. And so that that particular book hit the bestseller list, the New York Times bestseller list in 1996, which was the Olympics. I was a, you know, I think sophomore in college. So I, you know, it was really exciting and, and interesting to me to watch that. But at the same time, I'm like, I'll, I'll go do something else. But in 2009, he had sort of a, a health scare. And that really caused me to say, wait, you know, put the brakes on you know, what's here? He has all this data. He's been serving individuals for years. You know, is there a way to create an assessment? You know, how could we, I just had to start, you know, kind of diving in. And ultimately what I found was that there were questions and items and and research that could be used in assessments to actually help individuals understand their own behaviors and, and patterns of behaviors. And so that's kind of where so, it, like it was literally a vision of how do we translate what we learned in the millionaire next door into an assessment tool so we can actually understand who is likely to be one of the millionaire next door types. Right. It's like, how, how can I, you know, I, I've read the book. I, you know, I understand that. I, I can, you know, where am I, you know, on, on some of these things that matter? And, you know, I, and then several years ago or four or five years ago, I guess, I, you know, really started thinking about how could I have a company around this? Could, could this be something that I could do? I think I dabbled in some consulting or tried to and, you know, decided that, you know, I can do this. I can do this myself. I can put together how this technology should look. I know how it should look in this particular field <laughs> based on my knowledge of, of human resources assessments, which by the way, is not the same as how financial services use the, uses them. That was a learning so I was a little naive, of course, but, you know, started, we made blueprints, we applied for a provisional patent and kind of started through the motions of, of creating data points. And yeah, so that's kind of the, the journey, that, that's the journey up to the last couple of years. And so I'm just curious, I mean, how, just the, the leap that you made from you know, being in a world where you were an employee for 10 years or so to 
deciding to go start and and found your own company like i'm i'm curious what the what is that men- what does that mental shift look like what's that mental shift well i i i have to say that and i think anyone that i've ever worked for would probably tell you the same i've always been you know i have this not dislike for authority i certainly was a good employee but i think but you know i've always tried to push the envelope. And I think what I realized was in order to have balance between my family, between my other you know, priorities in my life, and between wanting to do something professionally, I needed to do this on my own. You know, even with part-time opportunities and in, in industrial psychology, luckily there are a lot of part-time opportunities for you know, men and women, but I really felt like I had to do something on my own. I, I needed to to craft a company that that could work for me and that that um, I could be successful in. So that was sort of the the realization, if you will. And so you had a path where you could go like part time doing some industrial psychology work while you were trying to lay the groundwork for data points. Well, I, I actually left in 2012, I believe. So I had a few years where I, you know, my husband worked. And so, you know, I, I did have that flexibility to sort of build the business and do the empirical research that was required to create the assessments as well. So that's really what what the majority of the time was spent doing. So I did have that flexibility and certainly not everyone does. So that's, you know, that was part of it as well. But is starting a technology company while a parent of children turning out to be the work-life balance part that you'd expected? <laughs> I had to giggle a little when I heard the word balance come out there. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. Uh-huh. Balance and technology. What does that mean? Right. So, yeah, we have made the change. Well, we made the decision last year that my husband would leave his job and come on with, you know, kind of part-time data points, part-time caregiver as well. So we've been able to do that. Um, we obviously saved and, and you know, are extremely frugal when we talk about frugality. You know, we're very frugal, especially right now and in, in, in advance of that, but in order to do that. So I, I do have a general counsel and a chief financial officer, um, even though we're super small and, and, and my husband, but that's how we were able to... Um, you know, for me to be able to do some of the things that I've, that I've been doing. Yep. And I mean, do you have a, like a technology programming background or did you have to go like raise capital and hire developers and, and build a whole team just to actually get the platform built? So we had, um, we kind of had two iterations of the platform so far. And the first one, you know, we've had, and we can get into this too, but you know, we've had, Several folks kind of come and go, sort of be attracted by the idea of a of a startup, if you will, and you know want to work for equity and things like that. So we had sort of an initial platform built that we actually completely rebuilt over the last uh, several months and was released in in February or March. But yes, we did hire. We ultimately had to hire an external team. I have an advisor, a technology advisor that I work with. It's a dear friend of mine that's built and sold apps. So I didn't have that particular side. Obviously, I can't, I'm not a coder, even though I think I miss 
we all missed our calling, right? But that part of it, um, I was really, or I felt like I was good at the architecture side. So I don't know how to write code, but I know what it should do. So that's kind of where we landed. All right. Interesting. And, uh, and if you had to go through the whole wonderful world of venture capital and raising capital as well, or, or are you guys actually bootstrapping this as you build forward? Yep, we are bootstrapping it. I will say, you know, it was funny, even this week at XYPN at the conference, we were able to chat with some individuals that are bootstrapped, that are VC backed or just newly VC backed. And that's been really, really interesting. Um, right now, we've made the decision that that's not something that we're looking for. So we are uh, bootstrapped right now. You know, again, I, I mentioned um, sort of being a pain to work with or work work underneath. So the idea of having other people telling me what to do after I've spent all this time trying to you know, kind of create something for myself or and for our family is is challenging. But at the same time, you can do a lot of good things with money. I mean, they, you know, that's just there's no way around it. You can have some really slick technology when when you have you know two point five million dollars to spend on it. Yeah, but I, but I mean, I guess the flip side at the end of the day, the 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 value of the business and what you build is assessment tools that build on, I guess what now is you know, almost 20 plus years of research of what your father started with Millionaire Next Door, how you guys have extend, extended it into your assessment tools. And I would imagine have, have gone even further down some of those lines than, uh, than what the book covered originally. So, you know, I guess from your end, like your technology challenges, how do we take this assessment tool and the process around it and just make it really easy to use and engage in with technology. Right. Yep. And I think, you know, from kind of a long-term strategy, we recognize, especially within this industry and especially with the, with, I guess what you would call our target market, or we call it our tribe, like Seth Godin calls it tribes, but you know, that they're dealing with so many technologies that we recognize we have to be able to play nicely with all of those and integrate. So that's, you know, something we didn't anticipate, but we have really great people that are our clients and they are willing to tell us the good and bad news. And so, you know, they're kind of shifting the way that we're developing what we're developing. So that's, so now coming on your roadmap is, is like, Oh, I, I guess now we got to integrate with uh, a wealth box or red tail or other CRM. Cause if the advisor's got the contact details there, they want to push the scores in there and they want to populate the, que- the, you know, the questionnaire information from the email and the name in, in the CRM. And so now you've, now you're working on those kinds of, uh, of integrations. Yep. Yep. So the, the second half of this year is, is focused on, on those things on the technology side, while kind of on the content side, we're creating new assessments based on some of the factor scales that we have um, for different purposes. So that's kind of two lines of development, if you will. And so where where do you see it going from here? I mean, when you look out three to five years from now, where are you hoping to see this grow? Well, I'm hoping to see that we are, I, I guess, considered the, you know, the source for that behavioral information and assessments and tracking. Um, certainly that would be my hope. I see us eventually integrating with some of the other tools that are actually measuring, you know, 
objective behaviors related to, to clients too. So, you know, can we track, you know, how often they're checking different aspects just in order to, again, help the advisor better serve their clients. Some of it's a little big brother. So that part of it is a little creepy, but I think there's an interesting dynamic to me that like, you know, we, again, you know, we talk about how we try to help our clients with their financial behaviors, but basically the only way we can actually measure our impact and effectiveness as a financial advisor is whether their account goes up or or their aggregate wealth, their balance sheet goes up because they're saving more than they're spending and and not doing anything horrifically self-destructive. And I mean, the it's a pretty lousy measurement tool at the end of the day, right? Like even, even things like progress towards goals, you know, over a one-year time frame, the biggest determination of your progress towards your goals is what the market does to your goal portfolio. It's not your, you know, at some point after you've saved a bunch, you know, when you got a half million dollar portfolio and you're still adding to it, like the $300 a month savings behavior is really good, but the determinant of the outcome for the year is whether the market moves up or down, which I don't control. So, you know, measuring by dollars and wealth progress and even progress towards goals to me is is sort of a a proxy for what we hope good behaviors will eventually produce. But even on a year-to-year basis, it's really noisy data. And I don't think it's satisfying to anyone to just say, like, just do these things, trust me, it'll be good in the long run. Like, It may be true, but it's not very satisfying to keep paying your advisor for that privilege. Yeah, right. I think, too, you know, one of the things that we – ultimately, we want to find ways to – you know, further validate the assessments that we have, but then also that there's actually been some impact. So I think some of the, I guess from, from our perspective too, to the extent that we can assist in that, that research, because it does require, you know, a lot of academic research as well to, you know, really look at the value again, above and beyond what you can't control of the, that relationship. And, and maybe some of that is simply, you know, ratings of satisfaction and, and, you know, and, and retention and recommendations to others and things like that. So there are some ways to measure outcomes, you know, and, and again, they're not, they're not really exciting or sexy, but they're, they're ways to do it that can, that can add value to, to, to looking at the impact of the advisor. Yeah, we, in the world, we're just, it feels like there's more and more pressure on us to justify and explain our value. To me, there's something really powerful to, to say, you know, like, hey, we've been working together here and, and I put up a, some chart for the client. And it's like, here's your real progress over the past three years together. And it's not a chart of how their wealth has changed. It's a chart that shows, you know, their their financial literacy scores up seven points and their social indifference scores improved by three points. And, and their you know, confidence score is up 17 points because we've done a lot of work together about getting them, you know, comfortable in their ability to succeed. And And like, you can you can show those kinds of metrics to say, here's how you prove that I've been successful as an advisor. Because right now we don't like we don't have that. We don't have any way to show that kind of progress and impact for clients aside from saying, well, you're you weren't accumulating much wealth before, and now you're accumulating wealth. So like that that was me. I made that happen. <laughs> right. It's all me. Yes. I think that, you know, again, we we have just started on that um, in terms of our technology, looking at you know, again, tracking how, how they're feeling over time and how they're rating themselves. And so that is something that the advisor can chat with about and demonstrate back to their client. I think that that over time, we're hoping to refine that and make that even more, more compelling and powerful too. Yeah. 
it just it's it's a wide open area to me i, I mean even just what you're what you're doing with data points itself you know again beyond most of us do risk tolerance questionnaires in some way shape or form apparently most of us do it wrong because we have the clients do it in our office we're not supposed to but right like <laughs> uh, uh, i had to learn that. at some yeah. point uh, <laughs> right. yeah, so i mean most of us at least have done something like risk tolerance questionnaires but but we have almost nothing else out there around how we actually assess and evaluate clients behaviors i mean never mind even getting to the second step which is are their behaviors and attitudes changing in a positive way because i've trying to do something to, to, to influence them positively. But even just to know when you're starting with a client, like here's basically the problem areas you can anticipate. Uh, this client is low confidence. So they're just not going to wall through on stuff because they're, they're going to, they're assuming it's all not going to work or they're terrible on personal responsibility or like they're great on those, but their social indifference score is horrible. And just, you're constantly going to be trying to get them to focus on their lives and not everybody else around them and what they posted on Facebook. Like just to know that and what those problem areas are going to be to me is is a, a tremendous opportunity. Never mind maybe to also screen some of the younger clients about whether this person's likely to be a good fit for wealth accumulation. Right. Yep. That I would say that's like that's that's the goal. That's where you guys see it building over time. Oh, definitely. I mean, that's you know we've started with the three assessments that that we talked about. You know, our our goal too is to release one that's more focused on high net worth, ultra high net worth individuals. We have, you know, some advisors, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that building wealth component is really geared towards individuals that are just starting out in financial management. And what we recognize is that individuals that, you know, are worth $10 million, they're not necessarily really interested in talking about frugality and maybe it doesn't even make sense. So, you know, what kinds of behavior, you know, how can we frame that in a different way? Because again, like I said, what we know is that in general, conscientiousness will help, you know, build and maintain wealth over time. So what is it that we need to be talking about with those types of clients that will help them sustain that wealth, you know, long-term? So those, those are kinds of the things that we're, we're working on as well. So any advice for you from you for advisors that are out there are thinking about going a similar direction with building technology. It's one of the long been one of the interesting things to me in our advisor technology space that that a huge portion of our technology are what I call the homegrowns, which I say affectionately, but it's basically advisor had problem, couldn't find solution, made problem for self with technology, realize other advisors might want it, sold it to other advisors, now own software company on the side. And you know, when you I mean when you look at the history of our of our space, you know, ProTracker CRM thought went that path, Juncture CRM went that path. Uh, we had Cheryl Rowling on uh, episode 34 talking about total rebalance expert, which followed that same path. Orion investment, uh, Orion Advisor Services was originally something that CLS built internally for themselves. So we 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 have all these different technology solutions that have come up because advisors just see the gaps and then try to make something often just to fix it for themselves and then start to turn it into technology companies. So as someone who's you know seeing your problem in the world and then tried to make some technology to serve the advisor community, any tips or thoughts of like how to do that well or how to what not to do that that doesn't go well? Yeah. Either either way, either way works. What not to do? Maybe, right. Maybe we'll start there. Yeah, definitely. So I, I think, you know, again, I, I mentioned Seth Godin earlier. Um, 
his startup podcast, which is only 12 episodes, you know, I think it was back in, I don't know, 2012 or 13. He talks about um, his book, Ship It, which is get something out there and get the reactions of the market versus sitting with it, keeping it behind closed doors, you know, building up all this marketing and ideas sort of without actually figuring out if it's going to sell. I think that that, you know, just looking backwards, that was probably, you know, one of the the bigger mistakes that that we made was was using or, or thinking we had to have this huge platform built when really all we needed to do was let's test the assessment. Do people even care about these behaviors? You know, I can I can do a WordPress plugin and, and determine that, you know, that kind of thing. So sort of that that perfection is the enemy of good kind of thing. Of good, exactly. Absolutely. So that's I think that's one of the things that we learned or I learned along the way. And then I think really understanding and sitting with people and understanding how they're going to use it day by day. Because even as an advisor, you have your own methodology, right? Of how you do things and how how you kind of work your workflow and I think having the tool, even if it's an MVP and it's clunky, you know, and and sitting with individuals and maybe it's sitting virtually, but and literally having them step by step, seeing if they can put this into their workflow is enormously helpful. I think that we, I definitely waited too long to to do that with you know where we were in development. Yeah, I I'll admit I find you know I I do a lot of consulting with fintech firms that work with advisors and a lot with with companies that are are coming in and uh, you know trying to start with our space and and this is actually one of the biggest areas where i find friction crops up you know they like they've they've created a, a thing or solved some problem and it may be a really cool thing that they made but when i think of it of just the process of how i work through with clients i'm like but i don't know where i would do this or use this i don't know how to fit it into what i what i do now i i get it for like data points and what you guys have have built here that I get there's a version where I'm, you know, I've got a prospect that maybe I'm interested in, but haven't decided to work with yet. So I'm going to say, Hey, I'm going to send you this assessment just to see if we're a good match. Uh, I can envision the one where the client just came on board and said, Hey, you know, as we get to know each other better, I'm going to give you this little assessment tool just so you can understand a little bit more about your, your attitudes on, on, around money. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. And uh, like, I, I get where I can fit those into the, into the workflow. Although it sounds like you've, you've now lived the next level of that, which is then we quickly get to, does it integrate with my CRM? And like, what, what can I automate? And yeah. Right. Does it integrate? Does it integrate? Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and I think like that's a great point. It's, it's also, you know, knowing that there's, it's okay to, to not have everything yet. And I think that goes back to the first thing, which I said, which is, you know, putting something out there and getting feedback and reactions is, is critical and, and you can't be afraid. I guess the other thing is just in terms of, of technology, you know, really finding and and working with people that you, you know, trust and know and that, you know, that, that, you know, that's super important. And that's one of the things that I think can be challenging because especially if you're not a, you know, I don't know what, what the code says necessarily. I don't know what it does. I know where it lives, but you know, if I I had to ask, like, how did you, how did you even find your, your technology person or your development firm to, 
to actually do this and get someone to build it. Yeah. So we we did end up, we had a, a recommendation for the kind of language that we should use. And so we knew what we, we needed to find an expert in that. And we ended up, you know, using like a freelancer site and we used Upwork and found this firm in the UK that we love that, you know, we wish we could go over and and see them um, and have a beer with them. But, and they've become essentially our outsourced, you know, IT along with, like I mentioned, you know, we have a technology advisor here who's, who's a good friend and, you know, hopefully I'll coerce him into coming on board with us here. At least now he can help look at a little bit of what they're doing and say like, yeah, yeah, these people actually know what they're doing. You're okay. Right. Exactly. And putting in processes for security and ensuring that, you know, again, this is financial services. This is not, I'm not making a Pokemon app. This is something that's, you know, critical. So, so that's kind of our, our journey there, but. So good old up, up work. Yeah. Well, uh, we'll put a link to in the show notes for people who don't know. It's just, it's a giant platform for finding, finding freelancers and outsourcers of, of all types, like no relationship to our advisory industry. So you found programmers on Upwork. Very cool. Yep. Yeah. Copywriters too. I mean, there's all kind. you know, again, if you have a good, think about a good screening process for those folks and put it into place. And we've had a lot of work, luck with that, but that's kind of our, you know, those were the challenges. I would say kind of the, I guess the silver linings. I don't know if that, is that the right way to use that phrase have been, you know, finding or, or really narrowing down kind of, again, who we think our product is for, that was sort of a journey in itself because I think when you look at financial services, again, coming as an outsider, it, it, not that it all looked the same, but, you know, there were lots of people calling them advisor, you know, themselves advisors. And, and I, you know, what's the difference between, and my friends, again, from my IO psychology friends still are asking me questions like, should I work with this kind of person or this kind of person? It's been really interesting. So I think finding, for example, a group like XY or other, you know, uh, sort of identifying who it is your target market is, is important to and building the tool for, for them versus for everyone. You know, you just can't, Nothing is going to be appropriate for everyone unless it's Google or whatever. I, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, you, you need someone that's really serious about in-depth ongoing financial planning just to want to take the time to go through this kind of assessment, much less reiterate on it or check in on it over time. You have to actually care about that stuff and, and that just not all advisors do. Some Some that's not their inclination, some it doesn't fit their business models, so... Well, very cool. So as as we come to the end here, this is uh, you know a show about success and, and paths to success. And and one of the things I've I've long observed is that success means different things to different people. Sometimes even different things to us at different points in our lives. So you know, as as you're going down this this path and and getting traction with a it's called a, a startup technology company. You know, as, as you look forward from here, like what are you working towards? How do you define success? Yep, I you know we we when I say we, I you know I'm referring to my legal counsel and, and chief financial officer, but we as a family, you know, really do you know are looking for something that's non traditional in terms of how we you know, work and how we balance our family. So you know, we do la- we laugh, and I agree, it's kind of a laugh to say, oh, I'm going to have a a technology company and have work-life balance. 
but we are looking for something you know like that and so i think success for us is to have a, a business that we're really proud of that does that where we can really do good work for the people that we that that are you know our customers and our clients but we're also able to balance that with with our family and and with other priorities in our lives and so that that's not you know again going back to the funding piece that's that's not really what somebody that's giving you 2.5 million dollars wants to hear but you know that works for our family so that's really you know success to us would be to be have you know loyal clients that are you know, making us better at what we do and um, that we're also able to to balance that with a life that's not, you know, crazy. I don't know if life ever doesn't get crazy, but I'm hoping that that's success to me. So <laughs> you asked for it. And that's All right. It, yeah. Well, I, I, I yeah. hope it gets to a, at least a slightly less crazy. Level. That would be nice. That's yes. Cool. That's right. That's right. Well, well, thank you so much for, for joining us. You know, I hope we'll uh, maybe contribute a little to that success path with some advisors that that are interested you know this is for everyone everyone listening this is episode 39 so if you go to kitsis.com slash 39 and uh you know scroll down a little on the page we'll have the show notes which includes some links out to uh what sarah's working on and what data points is working on if you want to uh go check it out and and take a look i i have no uh financial interest in that or anything i i just uh genuinely fascinated with what data points is working on and so i'm i'm so thankful sarah you were willing to join us today on the podcast and share a little. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This is great. My pleasure. You take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.